All right, well, good morning, Moberly Marshall. Good to see all of you this morning on a uh, beautiful rainy day. I pastored in the West Texas area for a decade, and so I don't know that I would have ever thought growing up in Houston that I would call a rainy day beautiful, but after living out in the desert for many, many years, uh, I now appreciate the rain that is coming down today. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, it's a joy to be with you today. For those of you who may be uh, visiting today, don't know who I am, my name is Andrew Abair, and I'm the lead pastor of Moberly. I preach every week in uh, uh, in our Longview campus, but so grateful for you and the ministry that's done here at our Marshall campus. We are better together, and I want you to know that I value the partnership that we have as we seek to reach the East Texas community for Christ. Grateful for your campus pastor, Jeffrey, and for the wonderful staff team that you have that, that leads you week in and week out here uh, at, at the, the Marshall campus. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to take it and open to Colossians chapter 4. Uh, this is the 20th sermon in the book of Colossians. We've been walking verse by verse in both campuses through the book of Colossians. We come to the last section of Colossians today. I know that that probably excites some of you who are ready to move on to something else. Some of you maybe are not quite ready to be finished with Colossians, but nevertheless, here we are. Uh, at the end of Colossians, and uh, we're in kind of an obscure section of the book. Um, we're, we're getting to a section of the book now where Paul is bringing closing words. He's bringing closing greetings. He's um, commending different individual bring, individuals, bringing different uh, uh, instructions to the church. He gives a benediction, and it's kind of easy when you come to uh, a, a, the, the last part of a New Testament letter like this just to kind of skip over it a little bit because there are a lot of names mentioned here that you don't maybe necessarily recognize at first and that kind of thing. But I really want to encourage you not to do that, to actually press in here because, um, right, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable. And let me tell you what, what all Scripture in the Greek New Testament means. It means all Scripture, Okay. Every part of the word is from God and it is profitable. That means when you come to sections of the Bible that maybe don't immediately seem relevant or you're not sure, hey, is there anything for me here? You're tempted to kind of skip over. Like maybe you get to certain sections of Leviticus, right? And your daily Bible reading plan, you hit Leviticus and you're like, oh my goodness, what are we talking about here? And you kind of skip over it. You think there's nothing there for you. Or maybe you come up to a genealogy. We all love the genealogies of the Bible, right? And it's easy to kind of look over those names that are unfamiliar and your eyes kind of glaze over and you think, ah, oh, there's nothing here for me. Uh, this is one of those sections of Scripture where it's easy to read and just say, well, there's not really anything for me here, but I want to encourage you to, to just trust that every word is in the Bible on purpose. And all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable. There is something for you here. There's treasure there if you dig for it. I pulled a, an old sport coat out of my closet uh, not too long ago, and I was putting an ink pen in the pocket, and I felt a little something in the pocket, and I pulled it out. It was a $20 bill. I completely forgotten it was there. It was an awesome discovery, but you, I had to dig for it. And sometimes in the Bible, there are treasures there. You just have to dig for it a little bit. And so that's what we're going to think about together as we look at Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. We're going to look at the, uh, uh, what, it, what does this teach us about God and what He is like? What does it teach us about what He values and prioritizes, what He expects of our, our lives? We're going to ask the question, what's here for us? So as we look at this text and, and see really these final words of Paul, we know that last words are important. 
And in these last words that Paul gives to the church at Colossae, we actually get to see some things that he valued about ministry. And so I want you to just focus your attention on a, on a couple of ideas this morning. First of all, I want you to see the people of ministry. And secondly, the, the priorities of ministry. Paul, in these final words to the church at Colossae, is going to focus his attention on the people of ministry and some priorities in ministry. If you're looking for a sermon title today, this is what I would title it, Why I Love the Church. Why I Love the Church. I love the church of Jesus because of the people that make up the church, the people that God has redeemed and stuck together in this thing called the church, and because of the priorities of the church, the thing that we prioritize together. And so let's talk about this more, that this morning as we look at the text together. The first thing I want you to, to notice is the people of ministry. Paul, in verses 7 through 15, is going to commend a list of individuals. He's going to be, bring greetings from and to certain individuals in the church at Colossae. And he's really going to describe a lot of different people that were associated with the church at Colossae and with his own ministry. But I want you to get a glimpse into the diverse array of people that make up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am thankful that when you look at the church of Jesus it is full of all kinds of different people from all kinds of different backgrounds, made up of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It is made up of old and young, black, white, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, uh, people who love rock music and people who love country music. Uh, it, it's a diverse group of people. And I'm thankful for that because it shows uh, the diversity of the body of Christ that Christ has purchased with his blood. And so as we look at these verses, I want you just to think about the kinds of people that God uses, the kinds of people that God includes in the church. And there's some surprising things to notice. So let's look, beginning in verse seven, Paul begins to bring greetings and commendations here. He says, Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. I've sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and so that he may encourage your heart. So just real quick, remember, Paul is writing this from prison and uh, Tychicus is bringing the letter to the church at Colossae. When he brings it, he's gonna give an update about how Paul is doing. He's coming with Onesimus, verse nine, who is a faithful and dearly loved brother who is one of you. They will tell you all about everything here. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. And if he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is called Justice. You can imagine how confusing it would be to have the name Jesus in the early church, right? So they just started to call him Justice. These alone of the circumcised are my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He's always wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he works hard for you and for those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. Verse 14, Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. So 
What a list of names, right? How many of you are maybe looking for baby names and you, you, you don't find a lot of these names in your, your baby name books, do you? But there's some pretty good options here. Uh, Tychicus, Aristarchus, Archippus, there's a lot of names here. This is like reading an old church directory. Anybody remember the old church directories? Churches used to have these. We don't really do this much anymore. In fact, I don't know of any church that does this anymore, but I remember the very first full-time church I ever pastored was outside of Paris, Texas, and uh, in, a, in a small town called Direct. The church was 110 years old when I became the pastor. And they had this closet back behind the baptistry that was full of old like church records and things of that nature. And they'd have these old church directories and you could look through and see the, the faces, the pictures and names of, of former church members from 40 or 50 years ago, most of whom weren't in the church anymore. And it was always really fascinating to me just to flip through those pages and see you know, people that I had no connection to, that I didn't know who they were, and yet they were really meaningful in the history of the church. It really meant a lot in the life of the church. It's very important to keep track of those names and remember uh, the faithful servants of God that have ministered in, in the churches. Well, that's what this section of Colossians really reads like. It's like you're looking through an old church directory that here in 2023, most of us don't know who these individuals are, maybe feel a little disconnected to them, but they're really important to the life of the church at Colossae. And Paul is just simply commending them and greeting them and, and uh, making record of their names and their influence and the types of ministry that they had. And God saw fit to record for all time these names and to put it in our Bible that is in your hands so that we would think about some of these names. And as I look at this list of unusual names, these unusual people that we don't really have a connection to, I'm just fascinated by the kinds of people that are included in the list. Paul, for instance, he just mentions, he highlights some people. Some of them are not surprising, but some of them are very surprising. Uh, here's a group of people not so surprising. He mentions Tychicus, Aristarchus, and Epaphras. And, and these three individuals are what you might just call the faithful. They are faithful servants. He describes them as partners in the gospel, fellow prisoners, servants of Christ, faithful ministers. Paul just takes account of the faithful servants that are part of the church. How many of you are thankful for the faithful servants that serve the church? Anybody thankful for that uh, this morning? I am thankful that the people who have been really most influential in my spiritual progress as a believer, typically it's not the people who speak to thousands on a platform. It's been simply the faithful men and women in the churches in which I've been a part who've just loved Jesus loved people, and served the church faithfully. Those are the ones who've really made a difference in my life. I remember my, an, an early Sunday school teacher, Mr. DeBlanc. This was a massive house of a man, intimidating, um, but he taught a third grade boys Sunday school class. And he gets extra crowns in heaven, I'm pretty sure, for teaching a third grade boys Sunday school class. It takes a lot of patience to do that. But I remember uh, walking in as a, a third grader, you know, I'm eight or nine years old. I go into his Sunday school class and he's a layman, has no seminary background. He just loves the Lord and loves this group of third grade boys. And he decided he would teach us theology. And so I remember after the first Sunday there, I was sent home with one of these big, thick notebooks that had all these pages with big words that I didn't understand. And week in and week out, 
Mr. DeBlanc would teach these third grade boys words like soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, right? Or Christology, the doctrine of Christ, words I had never heard before. But there was a faithful servant in our church, a man who loved Jesus and loved some third grade boys and wanted them to know God. And you know what? I came to know God more as a result of that faithful servant in the church. I'm so thankful for those who serve faithfully in the church. Paul just highlights some of those individuals. But there's a little surprising turn because not only does he highlight the faithful, he also highlights some failures. I want you to notice some of the surprising names that make the list uh, right here in Colossians chapter 4. Notice, for instance, verse 10. Paul mentions Mark. And do you see that right there? Um, Aristarchus sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin, concerning whom you've received instructions. And if he comes to you, welcome him. Now, that's really interesting to me that Mark is mentioned because Mark is a little bit of a shady character in the New Testament. If you remember back to your uh, Bible history, in the book of Acts, you actually learn a little bit about a a young man named John Mark. John Mark was, uh, his mother uh, actually hosted a house church in the book of Acts. His his mom was apparently wealthy, had a a home large enough to host uh, an early church. And John Mark was kind of this up-and-coming young minister who caught Paul, the Apostle Paul's attention. Paul actually invites John Mark to go with him and Barnabas on a mission, a missionary journey. So one of Paul's most important trips, he brings along this young apprentice, John Mark. And halfway through that mission trip, you know what happens? John Mark quits and he goes home. He throws in the towel and leaves Paul high and dry in the middle of this mission trip. Now, Nobody really knows why. It may be, you know, scholars are all over the map in terms of what uh, might have driven Mark to throw in the towel and quit. Some say, well, maybe it was hot. (laughs) Those of you who've been to Mexico in the middle of the summer on a mission trip, you know what that's like. It's like, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't know it was going to be, you know, like the surface on the sun in the middle of the mission trip. And so maybe it was just really hot and he got, you know, worn out. Some people said, well, maybe he got sick, like seasick, maybe in the middle of this missionary journey. He was just throwing up and awful. You know what that's like if you've ever been sick on a mission trip and you're just ready, you know, like praying, God, just take me now, right? Just praying for death. Some people say, well, maybe he missed his mother, had a close relationship with his mother. Maybe there's home, some homesickness. Who knows? We, we really don't know what caused John Mark to quit. All we know is he was a quitter. And he left Paul in the middle of a mission trip. Now, let me just tell you, if I take you on a mission trip and you go with me and we show up and we start doing some hard work and we're sweating a little bit and we're laboring and day two, you come to me and say, Pastor Andrew, you know, this is really not what I signed up for. I'd really like to go home. Now, I don't know how I'm going to react to that, but I do know that the next time I take a mission trip, you know who's not invited? You! <laughs> and that's exactly what happens with Paul and John Mark. Paul says, Psh, good riddance. John Mark is a loser. He's a quitter. He's no good for anything anymore. Uh, and he writes him off. And I sympathize with that. But Barnabas still believes in Mark and doesn't want to give up on him. And actually, Paul and Barnabas begin to disagree with each other about how they should handle Mark. 
and their disagreement, the, the volume gets elevated so much that they actually part ways. And so Paul and Barnabas actually split ways because they can't agree how to treat Mark, which is why it's so interesting to me that some 20 years later, here we have Mark again. And I wish that we had some details about what happened between Paul and Mark, but one thing that is obvious is that there's been some kind of reconciliation that has occurred between Paul and Barnabas and Mark. And now Paul is with Barnabas and Mark again, bringing greetings to the church at Colossae. Here these, you know, Mark, who was an utter failure, now Paul is commending. He's saying, God's redeemed the situation. Now he's part of the church. I'm bringing you greetings. And I'm even telling you, welcome these brothers. Paul includes Demas in the list. You know, Demas eventually is going to abandon Paul as well. Paul includes Onesimus in this list. Another, what you could consider, you know, a failure. Onesimus, we'll learn about next week as we look at the book of Philemon, was a runaway slave who actually stole some things that belonged to Philemon. And yet God has redeemed him. He's redeemed the situation. And now he's included in this list as well. And here's what I'm just really encouraged with, folks is that God can use failures. And just because you have a mistake in your past doesn't mean that God can't use you. Just because there's been something that has happened that's been regrettable or something where you say, man, I feel like I've been discarded or I feel like I'm not useful to God or useful in ministry anymore. I want you to know God can redeem your failure. Amen? And that's good news for me because if God can redeem failures, it means God can redeem me. And here we have, as part of the people of the church, not just the picture-perfect faithful servants like Tychicus and so forth. You would expect that. But here in this ancient church directory, you also have some failures. And that's a good word for me. It's a word of grace that, that God actually even uses my failure and it's part of my redemption story. God can redeem those moments that I regret and, and where I failed there are other people in this list. I wish that we had time to look at all of them. Um, you know, there are some people that would be in that culture marginalized and forgotten. Uh, I mean, certainly Onesimus is this way, a slave who Paul describes not as a slave, but as a brother. So now someone who was a slave has become like a son. He's become a member of the family. That's a great picture of what the gospel does. It takes us from that marginalized position of slavery into sonship and daughtership in the kingdom. You have people like um, Nympha, verse 15. Paul brings greetings to Nympha and the church that meets in her home. It's very interesting here. Paul elevates and honors uh, an honored female in the congregation. In the ancient world, females, slaves, children, they had no status. They were marginalized. They were forsaken people, forgotten people. They were people who had no value. And here Paul takes time to recognize an honored female in the church. He elevates and gives dignity. Folks, this is what the gospel does. We understand that male or female, you were created as an image bearer of God, given dignity by God, that there's equality at the foot of the cross, that we have equal worth and value as male and female. You have Jew and Gentile mentioned here. You have a list of Jewish people, a list of Gentile people. It shows us that, that uh, those who maybe would be marginalized in that world here 
here are brought into the center in unity in Christ. You have people of different socioeconomic levels. You have Luke, a physician. You have Onesimus, a slave, all part of the people of God. You have people who are well-known, like Luke. You also have people who are unknown, like this guy, Justice, right? You know, we know nothing at all about Justice. This guy, his name was Jesus, but then you know, then you have the actual Jesus, and so now he's got to kind of change his name. That way it's not so confusing, so he starts going by justice. We know nothing about him, and yet he's recorded in our Bible. He's got a verse. That's pretty good, isn't it? And I'm just thankful for this because you might be never known by any, you know, annals of history. You, you might be a forgotten You might be an unknown person. You may never have a name that's well-known, but you're not forgotten by God. God takes account in the words of Scripture, even someone who we know nothing about. His name, long forgotten. His influence, long forgotten, and yet he gets to be included in the church directory as someone who is meaningful in the church. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this list beautiful? If you just look at the vast array of people, all ethnicities, all socioeconomic statuses, uh, male and female, people who are faithful, people who are failures, all of whom God has redeemed and put into his family, which folks teaches us that God can use anybody for his purposes. And that's not because we are great people. It's because we serve a great God. And our great God can use any one of us. If you've been faithful or you've been a failure, if you're a male or a female, if you are rich or poor, educated or uneducated, God can use you. And as we look at the people of ministry, we see this beautiful mosaic that God has put together. I don't know if you've ever been to Europe and ha- had a chance to see uh, mosaics and, and some of the wonderful cathedrals. I've got a picture of a mosaic here for you. This is from the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, Turkey. I've had the chance to visit that. And this is one of the uh, well-preserved mosaics that's on the wall. It's a, a picture of, of Christ. Um, a mosaic to me is beautiful because um, it's made up of tiny broken pieces of pottery or metal, things that most people would throw away as just scrap. And yet, in the hands of a master artist, a master artist can take what would be junk to most people and build it into something beautiful that actually paints a picture of Christ to the world. And folks, that is what church is. Why do I love the church? Because the church is full of broken people that the world would say, junk. And yet in the hands of a master artist, God takes people that the world would say they don't belong, they're not worth anything, they are scrap metal, but God takes broken people and builds us together as living stones, and we get to portray a portrait of Christ to the world. Do you realize that that's what you are? You are, listen, I love to call the, you know, you remember the old, uh, uh, Island of Misfit Toys. Anybody ever see Island of Misfit Toys? That's like, that's like the church, right? <laughs> it's like people who don't really fit in or belong anywhere else. I mean, I look across the congregation in Longview all the time, and I'm like, what explains the fact that all these people are in this room other than Jesus? I mean, we wouldn't be together for any other purpose except that we love Jesus. And together, Jesus has put us together as a portrait of himself to the world. And that is our calling. It is our vocation to be in our brokenness, redeemed by Jesus and and painting a picture of him uh, to the world. So that's why I love the church, because of the people of ministry. Here's the second thing. 
not just the people of ministry, but I want you to see some priorities in ministry that Paul gives us in the last few verses, verses 15 through 18. He gives some specific instructions to the church, but actually, as you look at each of these instructions, it actually reveals some values and some priorities that Paul had in his ministry. Paul gives four commands in verses 15 through 18, and then a final statement. So five total statements here. And I want you to see five priorities that this actually teaches us should really matter for the church. What should be important to the church? Well, I want you to notice five things. Let's look together at the text, verse 15. Instruction number one, Paul says, give my greetings, notice that word greetings, to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. Verse 16, after this letter has been read at your gathering, here's a second command, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Here's the third command, verse 17, tell Archippus to pay attention to the ministry that you've received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. Command number f- next, what are we on, four? Somebody help me, is this number four? All right, just wanted to make sure you're paying attention. Hunter, thank you for that. Verse 18, I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Here's the command, remember my chains. And then the fifth statement, grace be with you. Okay, so again, we don't want to just read right over this. Let's slow down. Let's dig for the treasure. Let's see what's here for us. I think Paul, in giving these final words, actually gives um, a glimpse for us into the types of things that we ought to prioritize as a church. Here's priority number one. I think he prioritizes fellowship. Fellowship. You say, where do you get that? Look down in verse 15. He says, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters of the church in Laodicea and to Nympha in the church in her home. Now, I want to just focus in on that word greetings because Paul is not just saying like, say hello, say hello to them. Certainly that's entailed here, but literally the word he uses in the Greek New Testament means to enfold in the arms or to embrace. He's saying, embrace the brothers and sisters for me. Um, In the Andrew Standard Version, I would say, give them a hug for me, right? That's what Paul is saying. To the brothers and sisters, give them a hug on my behalf. Give them a hug for me. Uh, Greet them. uh, Embrace them. Uh, gather them into your arms. Paul is expressing here a sincere affection and love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. He he is expressing a heartfelt, deep-seated love for God's people. Chapter 2, verse 5, he says, look, I'm absent in body, but I'm with you in spirit. Here he says, I'm in prison, but please give my greetings. Please give my love. Please give a hug for me to the brothers and sisters of Christ. And I'm calling this the priority of fellowship. And what I'm telling you is that what we see here, even in Paul's closing words, is a priority of love for God's people, a deep-seated affection for the people of God. Do you have an affection for God's people like this? That in your, listen, in his last words to the church of Colossae, he's not complaining about his situation. That's probably what I would do. Like, hey, There's no air conditioning in this prison. There's no, you know, sports center. Uh, Woe is me, you know, tears and misery. Uh, I would gripe and complain. That's not Paul's heart. Paul is expressing what really matters to him. He's saying, embrace the church. 
give my love to the church. He's expressing a desire for love and fellowship with the church. And that tells us one of the priorities that we ought to have as the people of God, which is just a deep-seated affection for one another. Amen? We ought to love one another. We ought to love being with one another. When we're not with one another, we ought to long to be with one another. I remember when, when our church in Amarillo shut down during COVID, there was just a tremendous longing that the brothers and sisters in Christ had to regather, to see one another face to face. I remember that first time, 12 weeks we were shut down, and then we came back, and I just remember you know, the tears in people's faces as they saw people they had not seen for three months because there was a deep-seated affection. There was a desire for fellowship with God's family. We ought to long to see one another. Here's a second priority. I'm going to call the priority of Scripture. Verse 16, <clears throat> Paul says, After this letter has been read at your gathering... Have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Okay, what's going on here? Well, let's just pause and think about what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, I've written this letter to you and make no mistake about it. Paul understood that what he was writing was divinely inspired scripture. And he's saying, this word is so important. I don't want it to remain in Colossae. Actually, I want you to read it and then pass it on to the church at Laodicea. And guess what? They have a letter that they're reading right now. And when they're finished reading that letter, they're to give it to you, and you're to read it at your gathering. Now, some people say, well, what is the letter to Laodicea? If you look at the table of contents in your Bible, you won't find, you know, the epistle to the Laodiceans. It's not there. A couple of major theories out there. Some people says, well, this, say this is just a lost letter of Paul, and that's certainly possible. But uh, kind of a going theory, I, I think a, a prominent theory, is that he's describing actually the letter to the church at Ephesus, which was a circular letter that would have been passed church to church, and it was at the church at Laodicea at this moment. And Paul is saying, when it's done being read there, bring it to Colossae, read it there. What can we learn from this? What's the treasure here for us? What's here for us? Well, I think that Paul is communicating a desire that there would be a circulation of letters between the churches, right? And I think this teaches us that there, there's a principle here about the importance of the Word of God in the life of the church, Paul intended that Scripture be central to the gathered body of Christ. The gathered body would do, they would do a lot of things. They would pray for one another. We see that in Colossians. They would sing to the Lord psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We see that in Colossians, right? So there'd be singing, there'd be prayer, there'd be fellowship. But there would also be Scripture. There would be the reading of Scripture. There would be the teaching of Scripture so that Paul describes his own ministry this way. He says, I can present you mature in Christ. And so here we see a priority in the church. What mattered to Paul should matter to us. Amen? And what mattered to Paul was Scripture, that Scripture would have a central place in the life of the church. And folks, I want you to know, it's true in the Marshall campus, it's true in the Longview campus, that Scripture is primary at Moberly. Um, we value the Word of God um, that's why we have encouraged you in 2023 to take part in what we've called the Daily Formation Challenge, which is just a commitment that you make to spend time every day in the Word of God and in prayer. It's why we walk through books of the Bible together. We've spent 20 weeks now in the book of Colossians. You say, why would you spend 20 weeks in Colossians? Because the Bible matters. 
you don't need Jeffrey to preach a silly, cute sermon series on like summer in the movies or something. That's not what you need. Ain't nobody got time for that. Can I get a witness? Like life is too serious to have a spiritual lesson from finding Nemo on Sunday mornings. You need more than that. You need a word from God. That's why the Bible is central. It's why we take it and treat it seriously, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. And because the, the word of God matters because that's how you know the God of the word. If you want to know the God of the word, you have to know the word of God. And that was Paul's intention and his priority. Pass this letter on. Read this letter at your gathering. Maturity is what it's about. And so we learn about the priority of Scripture. I've got to move faster. Priority number next, the priority of encouragement. The priority of encouragement. Encouragement would be central to the life of the church. Verse 17, tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you've received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. Now, what is that about? Well, Archippus, it might help for you to know who Archippus is. We're not exactly sure who he is, but he is mentioned in the book of Philemon. Paul writes to Philemon and Apphia and Archippus and the church that meets in your home. Many scholars believe that Archippus is the son of Philemon and Apphia and was part of the home church that Paul is writing to. We're not exactly sure, but that's, that's plausible, okay? Paul is writing to the church at Colossae to say, Archippus has been given a calling from the Lord, and I'm calling you, church, to tell him to fulfill his calling. He's been given a ministry from the Lord, and yet he's not done it. And church, I'm giving you the instruction to come alongside of this young brother and give him a sanctified kick in the britches, to say, do what God's called you to do. Now, what's happening here? Well, I, I see here the priority of encouragement. And this is one of the reasons I love the church because the church is one place where we gather together and we have brothers and sisters in Christ who lovingly come alongside of us and encourage us to be about our father's business. Brothers and sisters who say, be about what God has called you to be about. Fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. We don't know what exactly Archippus was called to do. Some people say, well, maybe it was a calling to be the pastor of the church in, in Philemon's home, and he was running from that calling. We really have no idea what Archippus was called to do other than the fact that God had called him to do something. He wasn't doing it. And Paul now is telling the church, help a brother out encourage him to do what God called him to do. And folks, that's why we gather. It's not only to celebrate God, which we do. It's also to encourage fellow believers. One of the reasons that, that I come to church and I'm called to come a ch to, to church is not just because of what I'm going to get out of it. And in our individualistic culture, sometimes that's what we reduce the church to be. I'm going there to see what I can get out of it. And if I don't get something out of it, then I'm not going there when actually we are called to have an active ministry towards one another. And maybe the reason I'm supposed to be here is not just for what I'm going to get out of it, but because you need me to help you. And I need you to help me. There may be moments when maybe your ministry is not to be ministered to on that particular day, but to minister, minister what's the word I'm looking for? Minister to someone else. 
Isn't that a beautiful thing that we can come together? Because some days, listen, some days I'm going to come to worship and I'm, I'm not going to be in the mood to worship. I'm going to be grumpy. I'm not going to feel like singing. I'm not going to feel like praying. And the beauty of the people of God is that this is a place of encouragement where on a day when I'm not feeling it, my brother or sister can encourage me. And then there will be days when you don't feel it and you're not in the mood to pray and you don't feel like worshiping and you show up and maybe on that day, I'm encouraging you. You see, that's the mutuality of the people of God where we encourage one another to do what God has called us to do and be who God has called us to be. Isn't this what Hebrews chapter 10 tells us to do? Not to neglect the the assembling of ourselves together, but instead to encourage one another. I I met with a group of about 100 preschoolers a couple of weeks ago, and I was asked to talk about why the church matters. And I just said, look, the church is like a party because we celebrate God. It's like a family where we love each other. It's like a team where we help each other. And one of our priorities ought to be the priority of encouragement. Here, here, let me give you the last two. I know we're out of time. The Methodists have already beaten us, okay? So don't worry about it. The priority of prayer, look what he says in verse 18. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Paul's not just asking them to remember that he's in prison. He's, he's asking them to remember him before the Father. Paul uses the word remember like this all the time. In Ephesians, Philippians, he'll say, you know, I remember you in my prayers. Here he's asking them to pray for him. Prayer is throughout the book of Colossians. It's in chapter one, it's in chapter four. We looked at it last week. Devote yourselves to prayer. He's spoken of Epaphras being a man who wrestles in prayer so that you can be mature. Now he says, pray for me. Remember my chains. Paul understood the importance and the power of prayer. I've got a friend who constantly reminds me that prayer is not preparation for ministry. Prayer is ministry. Amen? And here's why prayer is so important, because if you don't pray, you get what you can do. If you do pray, you get what God can do. And Paul is saying, make prayer a priority. Don't forget to pray for me. Are you praying? For your church? Are you praying for your pastor? Are you praying for your family? Are you praying for lost neighbors? Are you praying for opportunities to share Christ? The priority of prayer. I love the church because this is the place that reminds me I need to depend, be dependent on God and not myself. I need to run to him in prayer rather than being self-reliant. Very closely related to that is this last priority. I just want you to see it here in the text. It's the priority of grace. The last word Paul gives, grace be with you. Paul ends where he began. In chapter one, verse two, he says, grace to you. And then the last verse of the last chapter, grace be with you. Paul understood if the church was gonna flourish and be all that God intended her to be in all of her brokenness and all of her beauty, it would be because of the power of God's grace. You say, pastor, what is grace? Grace is simply this. It is God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. It is unmerited. It is not something you earn, something that's earned for you. Not earned by you, but for you. Not by you, but by someone else. It is God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. I I have uh, had a little trouble here in the last couple of weeks with my right hand. I've had trouble with it before. Uh, This is my problem hand. 
uh, when I was a young man, uh, like 11, 12 years old, I broke my hand uh, doing an awesome skating trick. It was awesome until it wasn't awesome. I was skating backwards up a ramp. I was going to do a flip and land on my skates and survive. Just so you know, I did survive. I'm alive. But the trick didn't go exactly as I thought it It was awesome until it wasn't, okay? It was awesome all the way up until midair, and I realized I couldn't flip. I landed on my wrist, broke my, broke my hand. A couple years ago, same hand. I'm wrestling with my son. He ninja kicks me. I thought I would do a cool kung fu move, grab his foot, flip him around, you know, kung fu panda style. Didn't work. Instead, he caught my thumb, and it just went that direction. So, of course, I, I grabbed it and just popped it back. Couldn't use it for m- months. And then a couple weeks ago, I was uh, up on a ladder cleaning leaves out of my gutter and finished that job, took a step down the ladder, and the ladder went one way and I went the other way, and I landed on that same wrist. And I have not been able to use this, this hand the same way. So it's just been, it's given me a, a, lot, of, a lot of problems. I've, I've learned that when you have done something like that to your hand, there are all kinds of things you can't do. You can't cut steak. Um, you can't scratch your back. Uh, you can't lift the box. Can't do the push-ups. All kinds of things you can't do. And so you learn, you have to depend on somebody else to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. It's humiliating to ask your child to cut your steak for you. But it's a good reminder. There are some things I can't do myself. Grace says that we are broken because of our sin and rebellion. And there is nothing we can do to redeem our own situation. Even our own righteous acts are to God like filthy rags. But the good news of God's grace is that God has done everything necessary for us in Christ through his death and resurrection so that we can be redeemed and made new. And the riches of grace is God giving all of his riches to us in Christ, not because we've earned it. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't do it for ourselves. It's simply him doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Why do I love the church? Because this is the one place that I'm reminded that I don't have to be enough. The culture says, you are enough. The gospel says, you are not enough, but he is. And this is a grace place, which means it's okay to be here and not be enough. This is the place that reminds you, he's enough. Rely on him. Come to him for what you don't have. Come to him to do what you cannot do. Come to him for grace. May Moberly Baptist Church be a place of grace. Amen? Let's bow together. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the treasure in it. Lord, help us to value what you value. Help us to value the people that you have redeemed. Help us to value the priorities that you have laid out. And Lord, we pray that you would receive much glory in our church family as a result of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.